<coughs> Good morning. To confess, it is one of my uh, favorite Christmas hymns, though I don't often think of it as uh, something from the prophet view. I can almost think of it as today, us awaiting our bridegroom to come from heaven and awaiting him. But uh, that was singing about the second return, and we'll be looking at uh, the Messiah himself, Jesus, in the nation of Israel during his ministry, during his first advent. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 13. But first, I have a question for you. How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to criticism? I believe one of the reasons the Lord gives us children is to teach us about ourselves. And uh, through my interaction with my children, I've come to realize that I don't handle criticism very well by seeing myself reflected in them. And uh, one of the ways we often avoid dealing with criticism is uh, being distracted, uh, not focusing on the subject at hand that the person is criticizing us for, sometimes uh, shutting down completely and just not really hearing the criticism. And uh, that's to our disadvantage. Ideally, a criticism is being done in a con- constructive way. Ideally, a person is criticizing us with an intention of helping us. That's called constructive criticism. And when Jesus is doing the criticism, you can count on that being the, being the, uh, the type of criticism it is. It is always constructive. The Lord is very gentle in his criticism, and it's always for our, our benefit. And uh, so it, it would be uh, good for us, I know good for me, to uh, try extra hard to listen and not to shut down when uh, the Lord might say something that sounds to us as criticism, and it is, it is criticism, but it's only designed to help. It's only designed to help. Uh, with that, uh, let's start again. Uh, Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1. And he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commanded the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. 
He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right, so I work for a company that uh, wants to be ISO certified or is ISO certified. For those of you who don't know, that just means that uh, they have certain documentations and they go through certain audits that uh, review how the company is doing and they respond to the audits by fixing things. And uh, if you do all those things in a particular kind of formula, you can be ISO certified, which means you must be a really good company and everybody should want to work with you. That's really why people do it. They do it for the certification that tells other companies, look, this is a good company to work with. And uh, we wouldn't use the word criticism because that sounds too negative. We would use the word evaluation. And uh, what we see here, if we were to look at this, it's almost... Uh, like an ISO audit, first you have some data. The Lord is going to take some data here. He's going to uh, review the situation, and, and that's being done through this parable of the unjust steward. Then he'll come up with the evaluation, or if you would, the criticism, which we'll look at in detail. And then he comes up with a recommendation, recommendation, something that we should do. And then at the end, there'll be a section of supporting evidence, why it is that you need to uh, follow this recommendation. Okay, so in a very... Very straightforward waste. The first part we have here is the data or the parable of the unjust steward. Okay? And uh, I don't know how many of you have ever met a steward. Anybody here met a steward? No, we don't have that position today. We, the, probably the closest you'll come to it is an investment manager. And what that means is if you happen to have a lot of money and you don't like seeing it in your bank getting maybe a half percent of interest these days, you could go find an investment manager and he'll say, give me your money and I'll get you 5% or 10% return. A uh, famous one we may have heard about was uh, Madoff. A few years ago, he promised people a 10% return on investment. You could give him your money. You didn't know what he did with it. He could put it in all kinds of different stocks or investment strategy. His strategy was to basically pay off the early people with the later investors that gave him their money. And so at the very end, there was no money left. A lot of people lost their money. He wasn't a very good steward. He wasn't a very good investment manager. In those days, you wouldn't have had um, stocks or uh, different kind of investment strategies to invest in, which are obviously very complicated today. You'd probably go to a local farmer and uh, see if he has a need. He wants to take a loan. So you were the steward. You had the money of the master. There was a master. He had a lot of money. As a steward, you didn't have any money. You got the job. It's your job to take the master's money and make more money out of it. And you might go to a, a local farmer, and the local farmer said, yeah, I'd really like to rent a larger field and, and uh, buy more seed and hire more workers so I can come up with a bigger harvest. It's really a great plan. And you'd say, all right, that sounds pretty good. Here's, you know, a uh, 100 bucks or $10,000. Go do what you said and pay me back with a portion of your harvest. You'll get a larger harvest. I want a certain portion of it that obviously must be more than the amount of money I'm investing in you. 
So that's, that's the way a steward at that time would have to go about it. And this steward we see later on obviously had this type of relationship. He found farmers, maybe other kind of businessmen that would accept money or a loan and would re- give back a certain amount of yield, a certain, uh, hopefully more than, than you gave them. Now, unfortunately for this steward, somebody came to the master and said that he was wasting his money. Probably what they mean is this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's giving money to this guy and this guy. You'll never see your money back. He's wasting it. Okay, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a good investor. At least that's what he was being accused of being. He was wasting the, the master's money. The master wasn't going to see any return on his, invest, his investment. Okay, so unsurprisingly, the master tells the steward, all right, you're out of a job. And uh, give an account. I want to know where my money is. Show me, show me where my money is so I can get the investment that I should have coming back to me. That's what he means by saying... Um, what is it that I hear about? You give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. It should be easy for us today to sympathize with this guy, this poor steward. He just lost his job. And uh, <clears throat> people today lose their jobs. And uh, my heart goes out to anyone losing, losing his job in this particular economy because it's hard to find another job. And obviously for this steward, his specialty was being a steward, well, with the type of, uh, of recommendation he'll get from his last boss, he'll have a really hard time finding another job as a steward. And so you could see him racking his brain, wondering what he could say. He's thinking about manual labor. Well, maybe I can do manual labor. And he realizes he can't. He might be too old at this point to start picking up a shovel and do manual labor. I cannot dig. Uh, he, he could think about begging. Today, um, we should be thankful we have a government that will actually give us some amount of money when we're unemployed. And obviously, it's not as much as you're making when you're working, and there's some limitations as to maybe how long the government will give you money, but there is that service, Social Security, or I forget exactly what it's called, unemployment that you receive, and he didn't have that. Once this guy was out of a job, he couldn't find another job, he would be reduced to begging. A person who perhaps had a really well-to-do job in those days has been reduced to nothing. He would be a beggar. So it's easy to imagine, sympathize with this guy, uh, going through a crisis, a personal crisis at that very moment. Well, we, this is where this guy actually shines. So the story will get better in a sense for this particular guy. He realizes, he says this, uh, I have resolved what to do that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. He has an idea. He's thinking of some people that can help him out. There's only one thing. They're lacking the incentive to help him out. Those are the people he's been dealing with. Really, his business partners, the one he's been making loans to, he, wants, he knows that these are people of some means. would be really nice if they'd take him in, if they'll take care of him. He just needs to give them an investment. There comes the loan modification program. He, he goes to these guys and says, all right, how much do you owe my master? And uh, he says, well, 100 measures a week. He said, okay, take down your bill, quickly write 50. You see, he's still the steward, even for this last hour. He's the one that knows how much everybody owes his master. The master doesn't know yet. So he can go to these people and modify the loan. So basically the paperwork, instead of showing that they owe the master $10,000, will only show that they owe him $5,000. Or instead of 100 measures of wheat, it's just 50 measures of wheat. So clever guy, right? He goes to them, he reduces their loans. Now, they really like him. He's a great guy. He just made them all a lot of money. And, and that was his hope. His intention is because 
they, they're disposed to like him now, now that he'll be out of a job, they will take care of him. Alright? That's what he did. Now what he did was so smart, I can tell you guys are really impressed, that his master that was cheated by him praises him. He said that's what it means when he says, um, in verse 8, so the master commanded the unjust steward because he has dealt truly. The master himself realized, boy, this guy is really smart. Okay, he praises him. That's what he means, commends him. He praises him. This guy is really smart. And that's what Jesus is bringing here, if you would, as the data for his evaluation. And this is the evaluation, the end of verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Okay, we'll break it down for you. The sons of this world, who are they? Who are the sons of this world? Right, unsaved people. And uh, what it means by the sons of this world is this world is all they have. They only think about this world. In Revelation, they're called earth dwellers because their eyes are just bent here below. They don't see heaven. They just are concerned about this world. Okay? What does it mean that they're shrewd? Let me get, get into that one. That uh, Anybody has another translation than shrewd? The sons of this world, my translation, translation says, are more shrewd than the sons of light. Anybody has another word than shrewder? I'm sorry? Conniving? That's what you have in, in your Bible? No. Well, that's, that's exactly it. The word shrewd has a negative connotation in our mind, and the Greek does not have that. Okay, the Greek doesn't have a negative connotation here. Now, obviously what this guy did, you can say, was had a negative connotation. But the Greek word here doesn't. What, any other translations? Smart, wise, what? Cunning, what? Clever, all right. Yeah, some, some translation I've seen would have a word like prudent, okay? The Greek word, um, and I'm not a Greek scholar, my accent is because of my, my Hebrew language knowledge, uh, the, the Greek word is phronimos, and the, the most direct translation is thoughtful. He was a thinking man. He stopped and he thought about his situation. He, he recognized the trouble he was in. He thought about what he could do to resolve it, and he solved it, Okay? So really what it means is thoughtful. Uh, wise is perhaps the most common translation of this. Um, okay, so the sons of this world are more wise than the sons of light. Let's, let's talk about what this wisdom is. Uh, first of all, it says it's in their generation. So in the big picture, the sons of this world are not wiser than the sons of light because they're living a lie. They're living a world in a world that's really just an aberration in the universe of God. We happen to live on a planet where everybody is rebelling against God and think they can get away with it, which is not true. Okay, God will bring everything into account. But within this world, what they're doing seems wise. Um, what, what this Astur did appears wise. I went on a trip to Germany about a month ago, and some of you were praying for me. I appreciate that. And there I met some of the French uh, people that belong to my company. So we all gathered in Germany. We have different sites around the world. And uh, people from France were joking about the fact that almost the entire country was striking. There were strikes all over, all over France. Of course, French seem to love striking. But uh, in this particular case, there were very wide, uh, you know, the striking were lasting a long time. The reason for the strike was they were raising their retirement age. 
You used to be able to retire in France when you were 60 or 62, depending on when you were born, and that was raised to 65 to 67. So now you, you were counting on your retirement. At 60, you were like getting really excited, and all of a sudden the government says, no, you need to work another five years. It made people very upset. Okay? People in this world are, are concerned about retirement, which is considered here wisdom. They're looking ahead. They're thinking about their future. Well, that's wise. Okay, I, I went into my, uh, my uh, parents' uh, bathroom when I was there for Thanksgiving, and I happened to open the medicine cabinet, and I saw row after row of bottles of vitamins. My parents never used to have it, but as they're getting older, they're thinking about their age, and they want to, in a sense, provide for themselves for the future, so they're taking vitamins now to extend their health. That is considered wise. Okay, it's much better than not worrying about your health and, and drinking and taking drugs and doing all kinds of things for yourself. It's better to be concerned for your retirement than not be concerned, you know, living as let us eat and drink, you know, for tomorrow we die. That's not wise. It is wise in this world to be concerned about the future. Okay, but they're limited in, as to how far they can think. All right, wise or shrewd we have here. <coughs> all right, how about the sons of light? Who are the sons of light? Believers. Very good. Uh, it, says, it says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has opened our eyes. Just like God gave light to this universe, God gave light to us, individually believers. We have come to see, to some measure, the glory of God, which we haven't seen before. And uh, we could talk about the glory of God as revealed in His love to us uh, in the Gospel. Uh, but what it, it shows us is that this world is this aberration that's rejecting the glory of God. But the universe at large, or eternity at large, is filled with the glory of God. Everything will be done for the glory of God. We read in Romans that of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that's, that's the universe that we've I've had our eyes open to. This world is not what's important. It's the glory of God. And it's eternity that we should be living for. That's the light that, that's been opened to us. Now, Jesus says this in his evaluation of us, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What does it mean that they're more shrewd than us? Or more wise than us? Or more thoughtful than us? And if, not, if it's not clear so far, it'll become clear later on. It's the fact that we don't think about the future as much as they do. Okay? Maybe we think as, about the future in this world as much as they do. I might be as concerned about my retirement. I might be as concerned about my health when I grow older. But I'm not concerned about my eternity in the glory of God, which is part of the future that I can see and they can't, as much as they are concerned with their future. It's an evaluation of believers. This is what Jesus has to say about us. We really ought to be thinking more about our future than we currently are doing. All right, so that was the evaluation. Next we move to the recommendation. The recommendation we have is in verse 9. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into 
into an everlasting home. Or uh, your translation might say, everlasting habitations. Receive you into everlasting habitations. Okay, what does this verse mean? Probably the most difficult verse in this passage. We'll go ahead and break it down as well. First of all, what is this unrighteous mammon? We're supposed to go and rob a bank, and we, then we have some unrighteous mammon, and then we can give it to people, or these friends that will take care of us later on. That's, Jesus would never make a recommendation like that. Okay? Unrighteous mammon, it doesn't talk about how we obtain it. It really talks about its effect or overall quality. It has to do with what God thinks of mammon. First of all, mammon is riches, is uh, wealth, money, any kind of material possession, stocks, uh, houses that you own. Anything you own, physically you own, it has value that you could sell and get some money out of it. That's mammon. Unrighteous, talking about its quality. Why, why is money considered unrighteous? Why is mammon considered unrighteous? What, what uh, is leading God to have a low opinion or to recommend us to consider to have a low opinion of money or material wealth? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Right, this is a special, special exhortation that Paul is making to those that are rich. People that have unrighteous mammon. They have a lot of material possessions. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. All right. In verse 17, we see a concern that Paul has, the Holy Spirit has, God has, for those that are rich. It's a special concern that people who are rich would have, or that God would have for them. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. There's two potential problems that can come to you when you're rich. The first one is pride. You can become haughty because you're wealthier than other people, you could think that you're better than them. Okay? You have more than they do. You might think, well, you know, I'm better than that person. I have more wealth, more money. Uh, the other danger is you could end up trusting in it. Now, if I don't have m- many riches, I have to trust in God. If I, have, if I have nothing at all, I may have to trust God for my next meal. If I have wealth, well, money can solve all kinds of problems in this world. I can always bring in my money to bear on the problem. Uh, my, my modem died on me uh, over the weekend. I, I, I find that often all kinds of things happen to me when I'm about to preach. This time my modem died on me. Well, I had money. I could go to the store and buy another one for 100 bucks. but I had it. I had the money, so I could take care of that problem. I didn't need to trust God to provide for it. Of course, the modem I got didn't work, and so it shows you do need to trust God anyways. Um, 
but that's that's part of part of the danger of trusting in riches. It says uncertain riches. It's not a good idea to trust in riches. I have a my uh, Sharon's uncle uh, was a lawyer for the L.A. Times, and uh, I think he was one of the top ones. He had a really good pension when he retired from there, but then the L.A. Times sold it sold itself to another uh, magazine or newspaper group, and uh, they did very poorly. Everybody was doing poorly lately as people turned to uh, electronic media for their news, and so they end up practically going bankrupt and selling themselves to someone else. And that person basically liquidated the pension, and all of a sudden, a person that was used to get a very nice check every week or month for his pension was not getting it anymore. So riches are uncertain. It's not a good idea to trust in our riches. But there's a danger. When you're rich, you're more likely to trust in your riches instead of trusting in God. So here's just two things of why God might be thinking of mammon as unrighteous. It doesn't have a good impact on people. People that have it are more likely to become proud. They're more likely to trust in that instead of trusting in God. So it's an unrighteous mammon. It doesn't lead to good things. It leads to bad things. Uh, the proverb, the proverb, author of Proverbs 30 said this, Two things I have required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be fool and deny thee. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. So certainly there's a danger of being rich. There's a chance I'm not relying on the Lord, I become proud. And uh, that's why Jesus says unrighteous mammon. It's not a good thing. Having money in this world is just not a good thing in the eyes of God. It leads to unrighteousness, not to righteousness. All right, the next uh, word we had in that verse, and I say to you, make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon, uh, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting home. When you fail, when will we fail? When will we fail? Some translation might have, when will it fail? You know, when it fails. When will it fail? Yeah, when we die. Okay, so it's really talking here about, in a sense, having a temporary, everything we have right now is a temporary stewardship, things that God gave us. I, when I was writing for myself notes earlier, I said this is a, a criticism from Jesus about how we use our money. And then as I was listening to the Sunday school earlier about the fact that nothing we have is our own, I crossed it up. Jesus is giving us criticism about what do we do with God's money? Because the money we have is his. It's not ours. And one day, it'll be taken away. It's as if we have a stewardship now, and, and the Bible refers to us as stewards. We have the money that God gave us. One day, it'll be taken away. Everything we have, one day, will be taken away. When it fails, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. What is everlasting habitation? I think I heard someone say heaven. Yeah, heaven. That's the... Or it could be hell. That's true. Uh, but Jesus is talking to believers here. He's talking to believers. So, so this is the most difficult part of this verse and probably of the entire passage, at least as far as theologically. What does it mean? Who are these friends who are supposed to give the unrighteous mammon for so that when we fail, they will receive us into an everlasting habitation? And uh, this, you know, people have thrown up all kinds of suggestions over the years. 
And uh, some say, well, it's people. You know, we give it to people. And then they receive us into everlasting habitation. The Catholic Church was really big into it about 500 years ago. They said, give us your money and we'll take care of you later. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you'll be well received in heaven. You know, you can skip purgatory and go straight to heaven. Uh, I'm sorry? Can't find a way in. You can't buy a way in. Good. Yeah, it doesn't work. In fact, that's what probably prompted Martin Luther more than anything else to start the Reformation or uh, the Protestant uh, movement. It was really, yeah, this, this is not right. Hey, people can't receive us into heaven. We can't. Okay, actually, we're all a bunch of sinners. Nobody, none of us is even going there to start with. Certainly, I can't help somebody else get there. That's way beyond my ability. So don't give me money expecting me to somehow help you get to heaven. I can't do it. And nobody else can. Okay, except one, God. And that's the other suggestion. Well, it's giving money to God so that then he'll receive you into heaven. Well, there's only one problem with that, and that is salvation is by grace. It's a free gift. And uh, we looked in Romans, I think, last week or the week before, how it says, and if it is by grace, then it is no more of works. You cannot mix the two. Salvation can't be a free gift, and in the same time, I'm paying God for it. It doesn't work. So I can't possibly pay God for my salvation. So it can't mean giving money to God so that God will then receive me into everlasting habitation. Well, probably the best interpretation is simply... um, that of, of future rewards. The Bible talks about future rewards. Yes, every believer will go to heaven. But based on what I do in this life, I will earn rewards. Okay, now, I didn't come up with this doctrine. This is what the Bible teaches, that God has rewards and he's very happy to give them out and he's looking for opportunities to give it to people. But what we do will determine if we get them or not. Uh, just some examples. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 41, said, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. That's all it takes. You can give a cold, a cup of cold water to someone because they are a believer. Hopefully they're thirsty, otherwise they don't really want it. And you'll get a reward for it. Okay, it's that easy. It's, God wants to give us rewards that badly. Okay, if you would, he has a whole stock of them in heaven and he's looking for opportunities to give it to people. But how we live will determine whether we enjoy those rewards. Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that has the same general thought. He, he wants us to think about the future. This whole phrase of make, uh, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail they may receive you into an everlasting habitation, is really taking from the parable and the steward just thinking, I want to think about my future. I want to use what I have now for my future. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. That's the recommendation. Use what God has given you now to provide for your future. And that provision here is thought of as reward. It's not salvation. You're saved by grace. But God wants you to have more than just salvation. He wants you to be more than just in heaven. He wants you to enjoy all these rewards he would like to give you. And so he, would, he, he wants you to be thinking that way. He wants you to be living that way. To be use, use what you have now to get these rewards that God wants to give to you in heaven. That's the recommendation.
All right. Uh, the last phase we typically have when we have an ISO audit and we get the recommendation from the auditor, usually people don't want to do whatever the auditor tells them to do for whatever reason. They think they know better or maybe it's going to cost them some money. The auditor often has to justify him and himself and, and give good reason of why you should do it. Here's why you ought to follow my recommendation. And that's really what we have in the rest of this passage in verses 10 through 13. Verse 10, for he, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So there's, there's two, two encouragements here, two justifications, two supporting arguments in these two verses. The first one is think about your return. Think about your return. Something, if you're in investment, you want to do that. Okay, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. What are you going to give me back? Well, there's a parable uh, of the minas or the talents where, where uh, Jesus is pictured as a king giving some money to his servants to do business with while he goes to claim the kingdom. And then when he comes back, he rewards them based on them being faithful with what he gave them. So if you remember, what does he start with? Some amount of money, a talent or a mina. So, I don't know, maybe a few thousand dollars. What does he give them when they show they were faithful? He gives them cities. So the person who showed himself faithful with five talents or five minas gets five cities to rule over. That's a pretty good yield, wouldn't you say? What's an average city worth? I'm, I have to confess, sometimes it's difficult for me to try to wrap my mind over what will be a reward in heaven. Here we typically think about money. Well, in heaven, the roads are paved with gold. So, you know, it's not going to help me, you know, getting some more money. It'll just weigh me down. I, I don't know if I asked Bill this or I was just listening in another conversation when Bill, uh, Bill expressed his opinion of what it was. And he said this. I believe. It, he, he said that the rewards in heaven is having a greater capacity to appreciate God. A greater capacity to appreciate God. And uh, at the time, it didn't sound that impressive to me. All right, so that's what I'm after. But uh, if you think about it, those who know God, like Moses, he spent all this time with God. What was his wish? He said, God, show me your glory. He wanted to see more of the glory of God. And that's really what heaven is about. It's about the glory of God, seeing more of who God is, appreciating Him more, being able to worship Him more. And uh, that's, that's the type of rewards we might be looking at, is a, a greater, a much, much greater capacity to appreciate God. Here, we can't even see God with our eyes. There we will see Him face to face. Isn't that something worth working for, a greater capacity of appreciating God, enjoying God? Uh, the next encouragement we have in this passage is the basis of God. Think about it. Think about it. A lot of time we don't like, you know, thinking reward in heaven. Hey, you know, you know, salvation is free. You know, it's going to be so wonderful there. You know, why, why should I be working now toward rewards in heaven? Somehow, it seems like it's just too much. Um, oh, it doesn't. The, the whole idea of of God in some way rewarding us for something we do, we find troubling. Which is true because salvation is free. Salvation is free. You don't work for that. 
But Jesus then uses this argument. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? God gives us a stewardship here. He's giving us here opportunities to glorify him. Everything you've received from God is really an opportunity to glorify God. And if you're not using what God has given you here to glorify him, why should he give you more? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, why would God want to give you more in the future if you didn't show yourself faithful in what you've used? He, what, what he says here is, you know, if, if he who is unjust with what is least, mammon, money, he who, is, who doesn't use money for the glory of God, why would he use something much greater for the glory of God? Okay, we learn how we behave here is the way God uh, judges us. Not, he's not judging us as far as going to heaven or to hell, but as far as deciding who should he give the rewards to. Well, I want to give more stuff to that person because whatever I give them, they use for me. Whatever I give them, they use for my glory. That's the type of person I want to keep giving more to. Makes sense, right? Who would you give things to? Well, someone who uses well what you give them. You'd give them more. They're using it well. All right. Uh, the next, next part we have is in the next verse. The next encouragement or um, what did I call it here? Supporting argument is in verse twelve. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Well, what is this that is another man? What is this that is another's man? What is it that we have that we can give that belongs to somebody else? Well, again, I don't think Jesus wants me to go and you know, hey, Michael, can I have some money? Oh, great, you know, look what I can give you. Oops. I think it's okay. <laughs> All right. So that's not what he means by that. It's, again, taken from this illustration of the parable, or this parable. What the steward had belonged to somebody else, meaning he wasn't really losing anything. Okay, him doing this uh, loan modification program didn't cost him a penny. Okay, it was a good deal for him because he made some friends that would take care of him without any cost to himself. Well, everything that you have today, all your possessions, one day will be taken away from you. What you use to give to God is not going to cost you in the long run. He's given you some temporary possessions. You can give them to God. They'll cost you nothing because they'll be taken away from you anyways. Nothing we have here is going to go with us to heaven. Um, I'm not into jokes, but I'll tell a joke. There was a man that said, no, I'm taking it with me. And he specifically in his will, he required and said, you know, I want all my money to be put in the coffin with me. I'm taking it with me. And uh, after he died, the uh, pastor, the priest asked the wife, well, what did you do? She said, I gave it to him. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. I wrote him a check. Okay, so the, the point is you can't, you, you can't take it with you. So really everything I use here for God is, is something that won't cost me in the long run, but I have an eternal benefit from it. Because that's what he means when he says, um, if you have not been faithful in what is another's man, who will give you what is your own? The idea is in heaven he gives you what is your own. Whatever God gives you in heaven, you get to keep with you. It's a permanent benefit. It's a perm- permanent advantage you have for the rest of eternity. Um, 
Most of you probably know of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Amazon, uh, working among hostile Indians, which eventually killed him. And uh, people were giving him a hard time. You're giving all this comfort in civilization. You're going there to the forest. You're suffering. You know, who knows? They might even kill you, which they did. You know, you're, you're, you're a fool. Why are you doing it? And uh, my favorite quote from, from Jim Elliott, he said this. He said, ah, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott couldn't keep his life. He could have tried. He could have taken all the vitamins in the world. He would still be a dead man today. But he gave his life away and he gained from God something he cannot lose. And that's the way Jesus wants us to live. Give away the stuff you have now that you cannot keep anyway. And in return, get something that you will never lose. All right, in our last verse here, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's really uh, a uh, an argument of why we shouldn't be pursuing material wealth or why we shouldn't be trying to hold on to our material wealth instead of giving it to God. And... Uh, the, the reason here is you cannot have two masters. You cannot pursue money. You cannot try to hold on to money. You cannot love money and at the same time love God. The two are competing with each other. Either you're being faithful to your money by keeping it, by trying to make more, or you're faithful to God by, by giving your money to God if you have any money to give to God. Or whatever God wants, you give to God instead of, instead of trying to hold it to yourself. You cannot have both. It's interesting... Jesus was apparently allowed to say everything he said up to this point. At this point, he was being rudely interrupted. When, when he suggested you can't be a person who loves God and yet a person who loves money at the same time, he was rudely interrupted. If you would look, um, the next verses in chapter 16, starting at verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So here were the most religious people in Israel. The Pharisees were the ones that were sometimes called the blind Pharisees because they tried to be so righteous that when a attractive uh, woman passed by the road, they would look the other way and they'd run into things and they'd start bleeding. So, I mean, they, they considered themselves very righteous. They worked very hard to please God. And yet they were also lovers of money. That's what the passage says. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, they thought there was nothing wrong with pursuing wealth. They thought there was nothing wrong in trying to have as much money as, as you can possibly lay your hand on. And Jesus says this to them, You are those who justify yourself before men. You claim to be religious and to love God, but God knows your heart. And uh, later on in, in uh, John, he says, I know you, that the love of God is not in you. And it was their attitude toward money that, that showed it, among other things. Their love for money showed they didn't have a true love for God. Now, that's for unbelievers. How about for believers? How about bad is money for believers? Well, I read earlier on from what Jesus said. Remember, he, he, told, he told us we should be laying our treasures in heaven. So one reason to be using our money for the Lord is that we'll be building treasures in heaven or getting rewards waiting for us in heaven. The other one that Jesus said 
is for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The more I'm heaping for myself treasures here on earth, the more my heart will be set on those treasures. The less it's going to be set on God. So really, one of the reasons we should be using what we have for God is that we love God more. If, if I pursue money, it's going to be a hindrance to me in my fellowship with God, in my growing relationship or fellowship with God. If you remember, in the passage we read from 1 Timothy, when Paul was, was talking, telling Timothy what to tell them, he told them to be using up their money to store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. What is this laying hold of eternal life? It's not that they'll be saved by it, because you can't be saved by your works. You can't be saved by giving money. But in a sense, you could be a believer and not laying hold of eternal life. You could be just living your life here as if you're just anybody else as a believer. Well, God wants you to lay hold. What he's given you, he wants you to cleave to it and to enjoy what he's given you. Paul said this in uh, Philippians. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have laid hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward to the upward goal or the, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the way he lived his life. He wanted to lay hold of what God had for him. There's a reason why Jesus saved you. And it's more than just being in heaven. He wants you to lay hold on all of that for which he laid hold of you. In closing, I'd like to uh, read uh, a poem written by City Stud. Uh, most of you have probably heard of him. He was a successful, he was, he was a believer, but not really living for the Lord, and uh, was very successful in college. I forget if it was rugby or some other sport. Um, he had a great future as the world saw it in front of him. And yet, uh, his brother got ill one day, was close to death, and that kind of woke him up to the fact that, wait a second, I should be living for eternity. Only what I do for Christ will last. And uh, he wrote this, this uh, poem I would like to read to you. And then we will close in prayer. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world will tempt me so, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife. Pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for your very gentle evaluation of our life. We thank you that your intention for us is always good. Lord, help us see the value that you see in eternity and the lack of value in our material possessions that we might also live unto you and uh, get from you all the rewards that you are so happy to bestow upon us when we let go of things below and lay hold of the eternal life you've offered to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.